I definitely go towards the uh, like San Marzino's force velocity profiling just because it's probably got the most research backing behind it. Most of the other ones are um, like the script analysis. They've taken like the DSI, for instance. Um, I'm not aware of any training studies that have actually shown if you bring your dynamic strength index into this range of 0.6 to 0.8, um, this actually improves something. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is a long overdue part two with Joseph Coyne. So a couple of weeks ago, we released an article on Sportsmith called Plyometric and Jump Training Part Two, Assessing Plyometric and Jump Ability. Now it is this article that we dive deep into more on this podcast so how we assess plyometric and jump ability to be able to guide our programming to make sure that we're spending the time with our athletes in the areas that need it most so we dive into different profiling options that we've got and how we choose the most appropriate one for our population our environment and one that fits alongside our personal beliefs so joseph coin Great to listen to, smooth accent, I absolutely love it. So I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I did. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Samson Equipment. Samson Equipment has been manufacturing elite strength equipment since 1976. Based in New Mexico, Samson provides professional weight room solutions for those looking to lead the way in advancing our strength and conditioning profession. Being a direct manufacturer, the team at Samson brings fully customization capabilities in not only branding, but in custom equipment needed to execute your programming. The Samson team brings many years of experience not only in coaching, but in manufacturing high quality strength equipment. So there is no vision too great. If you can dream it, they can build it. Find them on social media at Samson underscore EQ. And for more information, visit their website, samsonequipment.com or email Andy at Andy at samsonequipment.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. 
IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool, which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro, and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defense, and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, iMeasureU.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Joseph. Joseph Coyne, welcome back to the Pace Performance Podcast 10 months after uh, after your part one, but it's a pleasure to have you. Mate, thank you. Thank you for having me on again. Uh, my pleasure to be back on with you. It's great to have you. I know we went into a bit, a bit of detail on your background in the part one so if anyone wants to dive into that they can they can check that out and that was on the 8th of july so people can people can uh dig into that but would you mind just giving us a brief background on on you and then we'll dive into what we we have planned which is all about plyometrics yeah cool 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 so look i'll work my way back because of uh, recency right and i'll remember the most recent things first but uh currently um in australia uh, working at a high school uh called lynn's fine anglican grammar also as director of sport and athlete development, also doing a bit of work with Bond University swim program and University of Southern Queensland uh, in their new Masters of Strength and Conditioning, which is curriculum development stuff. Then um, prior to that, I was with the UFC, uh, performance director out there in Shanghai with the Shanghai Performance Institute. Um, before that, uh, worked in Chinese track and field, and that's where I really sort of, um, a real massive interest area of mine. Um, Worked there, loved it, um, and a lot of the sort of things we'll be talking about today were from me cutting my teeth under some really experienced track and field coaches in the uh, in that track and field setting. Um, previously, also worked the Chinese Olympic Committee uh, across weightlifting and a few other sports, including swimming. Um, and before that, um, basically in in Australia, um, had my own clinic. Uh, I actually come from New Zealand originally, went to University of New Zealand and moved over to Australia and, and basically, long story cut short, started my own clinic um, and own strength conditioning gym uh, and then went over to work for the Chinese Olympic Committee and Exos, actually Athletes Performance as I'm known at the time and that sort of fills every, everything in um, to, to where I am now hopefully. Nice. So the, the topic of today is going to be jump training and, and plyometrics and we're going to dive into working back from the sport and then uh, determine the right tests for our athletes to understand what they actually need and, and dive into a few common questions that people may ask which may lead to well which will lead to the choosing of the right test but before we do that just to set that up why the interest in this particular area for you what what's kind of sparked the 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 love for jump training and plyometrics yeah so um Mate, like I, I even went to a wedding just on the weekend and uh, with one of my old university flatmates and he reminded me about how I was doing like a vertical jump training program when I was like 20, doing skipping and like jumps, all types of different jumps in my room next to his so he couldn't get to sleep because I was doing it at like 9pm at night or something like that. Um, I've always been, always been intrigued by like how to jump higher, run faster. I um, 
I played rugby union predominantly in rugby league, but I did like some speed training, um, beach sprints, sprinting track and field in my summer break. Um, uh, and it helped me so much. So for rugby union and, and rugby league. And so I really, I was like, man, I, I love this stuff. I, I really enjoy it. And, uh, um, look, I got to work with some real elite uh, sprinters and jumpers over in China. Um, and I'd worked with very, like national level Australian sprinters and, uh, here, here in Australia prior to that. Um, but working with, with guys, um, at the very, like in, in 2017, we had five of the world's top 20, uh, long jumpers in our squad. Um, so really, really understanding what, what jump training is and what plyometrics are at uh, an elite level um, became a, a, a necessary topic for me to explore and understand. Um, and I say jump training, plyometrics pretty much interchangeably now. Uh, there is, like, if you want to put a time domain, depending on who you're talking to or, or reading from, maybe it's Verkashansky, um, uh, it might be 300 milliseconds, um, maybe it's Smith Blight at 300 milliseconds, Virtual Chassis might be 250. Uh, you know what I mean? There's, there's these time domains around what they're saying. This is what a pyrometric is. But what sort of is generally known out there is, is pyrometrics, and I'm doing like the little uh, uh, quotation marks as I'm saying that, is pretty much any jump training. So, yeah, look, I, I really, um, really dove into that and, and, and cut my teeth with some uh, sort of elite level jumpers, which was really interesting. I know this is. It sounds like semantics, but people do get people do get on the high horse about these kind of things. Does it matter that the terminology is kind of yes? It does matter. You're nodding. Do you think? No, nah, nah, I don't actually. I don't. I don't think it matters as an industry. To oh right, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's <laughs> okay. just it's just jump training. You have how, like for, for, for us as an industry. How how do you yeah. Oh, sorry, Rob. No, sorry, mate. Crack on. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Look, I, I don't think it matters. It's like a um, whether it's like two hundred milliseconds, maybe Comey's two hundred milliseconds, three hundred milliseconds, Smith Blotter. It, it doesn't. Um, essentially, it, they're just bandwidths. Time bandwidths. You're doing. You're jumping, or um, it's locomotion, right? It's sprinting. These contact times or contraction times are. Uh, you just need to know this is where where I'm working at in that contact time. So, like semantics, yes, maybe you, you just need to know the difference between a fast stretch shortening cycle activity and a slow stretch shortening cycle activity. And maybe anything below three hundred milliseconds is a fast stretch shortening cycle activity. Although you could even make an argument that anything below one hundred fifty milliseconds should be considered a fast stretch shortening cycle activity. So, look, I'd I'd say in general it's semantics. Don't don't get um, your underwear too much in a twist about it. Uh, if it does pop up and uh, and like a lot of what we call like pyrometric training and what you'll see, like it's all counter-movement jumps, which are almost all above 300 milliseconds in terms of contraction time uh, when people are putting stuff out there and so on. So, yeah, I, I'm not too worried if somebody's termed something pyrometrics and uh, it's um, not, not necessarily uh, the correct definition according to the literature. Yeah. Cool. I hear you. Right. Working back from the sport, so you wrote an article for Sportsmith. This 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 chat's gonna be based on on two articles that you wrote for Sportsmith, and we're gonna dig into a little bit more detail and maybe some of the nuances and caveats that that people may want to understand having read those or or, or not having read those. 
So wouldn't, wouldn't the first one working back from the sport? You mentioned sporting demands, positional demands, and then individual deficiencies. Would you mind just giving us your thought process when you are working back from the sport? Because I think, and this is not to be, um, this is definitely to be com- complimentary to, to you and, the, and obviously the article, but I think when people say about working back from the sport, it's... To to me, it always comes across that the, the the reader or the 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 listener maybe just just tell me what to do, just tell me the exercise you want to, I should be doing. Like people want the answer, people want to get to the end super super quick and want and want the the you know, the, the black and white. This is what I should be doing. But what we're actually saying is understand the sport and the context that you're working in, and then that that will kind of answer its own question to a certain extent. So, what's your process when? when taking that step back and trying to understand the sport that you're working in? Yeah, for sure. So it is, you've got to understand what success is in that particular sport. Once you understand what success is, then you can be like, okay, what factors influence the success? So say long jump, all right. Um, Jumping far is success in the sport. Above eight metres, 20, 30, 40, um, that's success in the sport. Uh, depending on who you're against and, and what's happening. Um, now, a lot of that uh, we know is related to the approach speed um, before takeoff. So maybe 90% of your jump distance is related to how fast you're coming into the board. So now you know, okay, well, what, what do we need? We, we need people that can run fast um, and and uh, if they and jump really far. And then how do you put that together? How do you how do you manipulate those things? Okay, so if we've got a person, they run at 10.5 meters per second, but a lot of the other elite long jumpers in the world run at 11 meters per second, okay, comfortably in an approach. Okay, well, there's a, a deficiency right there that we need to work on their speed, um, unless they've got these other sensational qualities about them. But it's all about understanding what success is and then working way back from that from what success looks like to tell you what to, you should be doing in your uh, preparation. So look, Jeremy Shepard says it, your preparation framework needs to be a slave to your performance model. That, that's how it needs to work. And um, one of the reasons is that there's so much, so many things you could be doing um, with athletes. You actually need to be really targeted and uh, concise with what you're actually going to apply to them, what interventions you're going to give them. Otherwise, you run the risk of getting nothing accomplished. Um, and it's the old, you can't sit on two horses at any one time. You really got to know what you're going to go after and, and focus on that based on what's going to influence the success in the sport. Now, every athlete will have some type of uh, individual deficiencies, whether it's physiological, psychological, um, biomechanical. Okay, there'll be te- technique. Um, but you have to, again... Uh, you need to address these. These would probably be um, secondary to, like, say, the results of an FMS or some type of screening exam. Would probably be secondary to what actually needs to happen in that sport. Because you might be addressing things that are totally irrelevant for this uh, person to succeed in their sport. It's not to say you should never address those things, but you always need to take care of the big rocks first. And those big rocks are what's going to help this person succeed in the sport, what's going to help them um capture that that essence that is success in that particular event or that or that sport so that those things have to be tied in so so for instance if a 
um, if a athlete has, and I'm, I'm just thinking um, sprinting here, but if an athlete has uh, a restricted hip flexor on or anterior hip complex on one side, so the left side, and it affects lower back issues uh, from like a medical screen or something like that, it's an individual deficiency, then yes, that should be dealt with um, as a priority. However, if a long jumper, for instance, has a deficit in um, internal range of motion of the shoulder, now that may affect mechanics and technique and things like that, but in terms of um, first order things, it might not be that that important uh, for them to be successful in the sport. So you always have to have this understanding of if we are going to look at an individual and uh, we're going to screen them, we're going to do these things, how does that tie into what actually success looks like for that particular sport? Long jump and sprinting is obviously a, a nice example to use because the, the outcome and success is reasonably obvious for, for, from, the out, from the outside. But when it comes to team sports or something like UFC, for example, a lot, lot more complex, how do you decipher what success looks like for for a team sport athlete or like like I say a combat athlete yeah 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 so um look team sports success performance and I always get um this is actually one thing I am big on semantics we call um performance uh departments um uh, performance departments and we call say sports science uh, sports science when people are looking at like physical tests or physiological variables in essence, performance is your performance in the actual event or in the actual sport. That's what should be termed, like your your technical coaches should be called performance coaches because they're the ones that are actually doing the uh, doing the performance in the sport. Um, but long story cut short, in team sports, hey, it's scoring more goals than the opposition. What relates to you scoring more goals than the opposition or not letting them score more goals than you? In um, combat sports, it's scoring more points or more, more significant strikes than the opposition, or not letting them, uh, uh, or not absorbing more significant strikes than the opposition. So how do you how do you then factor that back? Um, what's the rate of significant strikes? How do you then factor that back into KPIs that relate to uh, you improving a person's chance um, to be successful in that, in that particular event or in that particular sport or against a certain opponent? In the article, in the first article, you mentioned the sport relevance classification system, which sounds super, super complex, but when we dig into it, it, it all obviously makes sense. Would you mind just giving us a bit of a, an insight into that, into that, and then we can delve into the five think like checkboxes that you would that you would go through. Yeah, sure. So, so it's just about um, me, and, and not me. It's, it's not just me, but like drawing on the work of others, but just. Coming up, okay, how are we how are we looking at what we're doing in training? How are we making sure this is actually relevant to uh, what people actually need to do in their sport? So, for instance, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, the relevancy of a counter movement jump for sprinting only really applies to maybe block starts. After that, very little relevance uh, from there. Now, running fast and jumping high will, of course, be correlated. Um, and there's different levels of correlation depending on who you read and what literature you uh, you bring up. But that might just because be because fast people have really powerful legs and are generally better jumpers than people that aren't really fast. So 
there's these these tidbits that you need to understand. Um, and look, there, there's uh, I, I basically break it down. There's like stance, whether you're coming out of a um, two leg bilateral uh, bilateral split, whether it's one leg you're coming off. Um, so obviously a block start and sprinting is going to be a split stance. Uh, that type of jumping is going to be more relevant for you than bilateral. Um, unilateral jumping uh, might be more relevant for top end speed because you're coming off unilaterally. Um, it's not a two foot contact uh, when you're when you're running at maximum speed. So that's that's one of the big relevancy factors. Another one is contact time or contraction time. Um, for instance, you might be looking at say. 85 to 100 milliseconds when you're running at maximum velocity. Um, when you're taking off a long jump board, it might be 130 milliseconds. Taking off a high jump might be 150 milliseconds. So these all give us sort of bandwidths that we can work at in and around to be like, okay, we're approaching contact times that are close to what we're actually doing in the sport, um, that are going to influence what we're doing in the sport. The next one is, is direction. Uh, and uh, I know Lachlan Wilmot has, has got some great stuff on here and, and um, Exos as well, uh, athletes' performance, but yeah, there's there's different directions. There's like vertical, horizontal, lateral, um, rotational is another one, um, especially for those team sports and field and court sports that that you mentioned. And then there's one that I'd say probably doesn't get enough attention when people are thinking about pyrometrics is, is your approach. So um, this might be. Uh, do athletes actually have a, a run running approach before they jump? And that makes a massive difference to what type of things are going to be relevant for them to actually improve their performance in something like that. So like a volleyball spike jump will normally have a two to three step approach beforehand. Um, obviously long jump, big approach, high jump approach. Basketball, a lot of the jumps, unless they're directly under the hoop, or rebounding will have some type of approach. Headers in soccer uh, will generally have an approach. Um, so there's there's these things that you should be aware of, and you jumping out of an approach is very different to you jumping uh, without an approach. It's like the the distinct skills, um, and so that's a big one. That's that's a real big one. Um, you could also you could also say that uh, approach could could be factored into things whether you're jumping off heights, like jumping off boxes, um, whether you're not having a counter movement beforehand. Um, those would all be things I consider in and around um, what type of uh, whether we need to consider how we're approaching the jumps uh, to be more relevant to an actual pyrometry to be for the sport. Uh, and then surface, you've, you've got different surfaces that people will jump on. Uh, in general, it wants to be as close as possible to a competition surface, although there's definitely advantages to working on softer surfaces and working on what I term like quasi-closed uh, surfaces, so things like sand. There's actually benefits to sand. I know it gets a bad rap in the performance world, um, but there's, there's like research-backed benefits to sand improving um, like your squat jumps or your non-counter movement jumps compared to jumping on the grass. And obviously there's all sorts of other things. If you're doing low amplitude jumps in sand, that can be brilliant for like the foot musculature, the foot intrinsic musculature, all those type of things. So yeah, don't sleep on the sand is what I'm saying. But that's another thing that you need to be considering when you're going, oh, is this uh, jumping activity or is pyrometric going to be right for what I want it to do? You should consider those sort of, I think it was five things, the stance, the contact time, the direction, the approach, and, and then the surface. Would all be things I'm thinking about when I'm designing what type of jumps I want to be doing with people. Let's have a little dig into the approach versus the non-approach, because like you say, maybe sometimes it gets forgotten about. Apart from the obvious, 
if we've got an athlete that jumps after an approach, well, we train like that. Or if an athlete doesn't, well, we don't. And we, we train with that uh, from the static position. Is there any other nuances that we have to think about on that? And maybe a second part to that question, can you give us some examples of maybe exercise selection based on both of them? Rough exercise selection, maybe global, um, based on them two um, options, approach versus non-approach? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, look, there's um, like long jump coaches have been doing this for, for years, right? You have short approach jumps and long approach jumps, and you comp- can compare between the two. Like, you might have a five step approach and a nine step approach, um, and then your full approach jump, and then long jump coaches will be like, okay, well, this is what they're doing in a nine step, and this is what they should be doing in a, in a full approach, and then weighing that up and determining what, what do I need to work on? Do I need to work on approaching more, or do I need to work on actual like take takeoffs more um, in a really simple um, simple explanation. So you can do the same thing with, uh, say, counter movement jumps, um, and it's it's really easy. An athlete might do a counter movement jump uh, without an approach. What we'd see normally um, on any set of force plates or jump mats around the world, very common. And then an athlete might also do a jump where they have, say, a three step approach into that jump or a five step approach into that jump. And then you're going to look at the difference, and you're going to be okay. Is this difference massive? If it is, then maybe we just need to work on jumping without an approach. Is this difference uh, very small? If the difference is very small, then you're going to be like, well, this person doesn't have their sequencing right. They can't use the energy that they're generating um, from the approach into the jump. Um, either Maybe there's technical constraints, um, biomechanical constraints. They're not doing something correctly or they're just and they're just not coordinated to use that energy to then increase vertical output uh, when they actually jump from this approach. So yeah, it's 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 really simple. Uh, you can look at how well they jump without an approach, how well they jump with an approach, and then be like, okay, this is what I'm going to work on. Especially if those uh, you have these jumps that are with approaches that are really important in your sport, like a rugby union winger or rugby league winger coming up to catch a height ball. Um, those are all approach jumps. Uh, that would be a really important performance factor in that particular sport. Would you have an expectation, maybe using long jump as an example, or a team sport athlete as an example, would you have an expectation of 20% higher or 10% higher for an approach versus non-approach so people can get a bit of a gauge on what to expect? Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, is that, you've got to be really wary of looking at like nine-step and five-step approaches and long jump and how far people jump in that um, versus their actual virtual actual approach but I'll probably the one that will be most relevant for the um, listeners out there is um, it's about 20% NBA combine um, guys uh, that that would be the average um, so and that that's off like a three to five step approach um, and that that's my experience as well people should be able to jump around 20% higher um, give or take five five percent or so uh, based on being able to utilize three to five steps beforehand or um, versus not having that approach. Cool. I think that's that's good to know. So people, I know people will get to understand what them differences look like as they collect more data, but having that right off the bat, I think will uh, will definitely help. Let's have a little chat because I think it's, it's the way that the conversation is going anyway. The second article that you wrote for Sportsmith, which is determine the right test for the athlete. And you ask and then answer a couple of well five questions that that coaches may 
uh, may have themselves, which leads them to a particular or a variety, in many cases, of tests. One one particular one with the first, the first one, does the athlete need more force or more velocity to improve performance? And off the back of that, in the article, you describe the various different options people have got, and then you say the one that you have used the most to try to determine that question. Would you be able to run through the answer to that and the particular test that you have favoured to try to answer that question? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So I've used a lot um, and I've got heaps of experience with, say, Semizeno's force velocity profile, which is um, jump across a spectrum of loads. Um, and what happens is you'll get a force velocity uh, regression and then you also get this optimal slope based on limb lengths, based on your watts per kg, like your relative power, and then also based on what angle against gravity you're going to be jumping at. So whether you're projecting straight up 90 degrees or projecting out 30 to 40, 90 degrees might be a counter movement jump, 30 to 40 degrees might be your sprint start or coming off the blocks and swimming, something along those lines. So those three factors will, will determine your optimal slope. Um, and then you can compare how far away from that optimal slope you are with San Marzino's force velocity profile. So a lot of experience with that. I've used that with um, elite sprinters and jumpers in, in China. Um, and then I've also got a lot of experience with uh, the dynamic strength index, which is the comparison between the peak force in a, uh, originally it was a squat jump or non-counter movement jump and an isometric mid-thigh pull. Um, but you can also do a counter movement jump and a, and a peak force counter movement jump and uh, isometric mid-thigh pull is another option um, there. And then there's other ones, there's like Bosco had one where basically you put on 100% of your body weight on your back, jump with that, then you jump without any weight on your back. And if it was um, over uh, like a third, 33%, um, then uh, you would um, need to work more um, on, on your unweighted jumps or on velocity side of things. And below that, you need to work more on strength um, to bring up the, the weighted jumps uh, type, type of thing. So yeah, you've, you've got these type of things that can tell you, hey, does my athlete need to focus on force more or do they need to focus on velocity more? And one, I definitely, uh, I definitely go towards the, uh, like Sam Mazzino's force velocity profiling just because it's probably got the most research backing behind it. Most of the other ones are um, like the script analysis. They've taken like the DSI, for instance. Um, I'm not aware of any training studies that have actually shown if you bring your dynamic strength index into this range of 0.6 to 0.8, um, this actually improves something. So that, that's a big thing. Like we've got this sort of cross-sectional analysis, but then we need to know if we actually bring people into the averages, bring people into the average plus or minus one standard deviation, which is where the ratios come from for the DSI. Does that actually improve anything? So um, there's there's that consideration. And, and uh, Samazino's work, which uh, has been look, sort of furthered by, by others, um, kind of has that support. And in my practice, I've also found it to be quite valuable in being able to improve people's um, jumping output, at least in a counter movement jump, because you've got to remember, it's going to improve the output in a counter movement jump, not necessarily anything else, or not necessarily other type of jumps. So if that's your aim, and that's your purpose, that, that's definitely my go-to. Um, and there can be uh, a fair bit of disagreement between those methods. So then you've got to pick, okay, which one am I going to go with? Um, and I'll give you an example. 
there was like uh, we, we did this at the UFC PI when I was there. There was something like and and I forget the actual correlation, but it was it was a large negative correlation between the results of the test telling you what you should focus on with an athlete. So the DSI would tell us one thing, and then the force velocity profile would tell us another thing. At the end of the day, you can only pick one um, to go with. You can't go, oh, let's do some of this and some of that. So that my from that and from really investigating it at a at a um, at a at a quite a deep level um, and that comparison, uh, I've sort of stuck with the uh, with Sam Zeno's force velocity profile, and that that's my favourite choice at the moment. Where can people go to get the details on uh, Pierre Samazino's uh, floss velocity profile? Is the like is the, is it on JB's website? Is that am I right there? Yeah, yeah, it'll be on JB's website. They'll have a um, spreadsheet you can download for free. Funny story on that spreadsheet: I actually created my own in maybe like 2016 based on their research, and then the guys come out and release the free one like about a month or two after I'd spent like four weeks <laughs> trying to do it myself and and figured it out on myself. So I was like, ah, guys. <laughs> absolutely killing me well the the second that that's great that's great by the way and I'd, i'll definitely link to, to jb's website and um and pierre's work as well so people can have a little dig a little bit deeper so we're just going to take a very quick break in the episode with joseph so we kick off part two with a chat around movement signature and how that could potentially guide our programming for plyometric and jump training. Then a few more questions that were brought up in the article that we dive into in more detail with here. So great to get part two coming up with Joseph. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics, and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology, and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL, and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research, and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at kitmanlabs. And this episode is also sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Black Box Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Black Box are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Black Box manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. If you want to learn more about Black Box, check out their website blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at blackboxfitness. And now back to the episode with Joseph. The next question on the on your um, in the article was: Does an athlete's movement signature tell us about how we could improve performance? And movement signature is very much a, a buzzword that's pretty great for marketing, perfect for marketing, but maybe lack of understanding of what that actually looks like and how to understand it. So. What's your what's your thoughts on answering that question through through the, choosing the right test? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I generally break down, and depending on, like, as you say, it's a bit of a buzzword, right? Um, depending on how people define movement signature is is interesting because there's movement signatures in terms of like how much uh, range of motion the joints go through when they're jumping. There are movement signatures in terms of what is the force time trace on force plates. What what's what's look what are things looking like from an eccentric to concentric. Um, like unloading phase, propulsion phase, that type of thing in the counter movement jump. And there's also uh, movement signatures that people refer to uh, like temporal variables, like what's the flight time like, what's the contact time like. So depends on what people are talking about. If they're talking about joint uh, ranges of motion, this, um, this can be, I actually like looking at this. Normally I'm a big fan of standardizing all jump depths. So whenever we do any jumps with loads, it's always to around this 90 degrees. Something that uh, Carmelo Bosco did, um, something I picked up from PSM Zeno, actually when I was getting uh, low um, R squared uh, results from my force velocity profiling with the long jumpers, I was like, man, why is this happening? Um, I was using self-selected depths, and that was actually probably, and I was like, well, these guys are some of the best jumpers in the world. I can probably... If you let them choose the depth they're going to jump with with um, with load, but as soon as I cleaned that up and went everything from ninety degrees uh, around ninety degrees, like it's a, it's still a self-selected depth that I wouldn't go any more below eighty and any more above hundred, but somewhere in that range for for the athletes. Um, that that is that is hundred percent what I'd what I'd advocate for people to uh, be aware of is that. If, if you, especially if you're doing force velocity profiling, those those depths should be standardised. Um, and I'd say also, and I know there's a lot of research in there in the like athlete monitoring space with um, say Stu Cormack's work kicked it off to start with. But I'd say if you want to be really uh, on top of things in an athlete monitoring space and using jumps, you should probably standardise the depth with that because if you're going to look at uh, temporal variables like contraction time or RSI to give you an indication of whether an athlete's fatigued. And one day they're going through, say, um, 80 degrees of knee joint angle. And then another day when they're tired, they're going through like 100 degrees of knee joint angle. And you've got these longer um, contact times and you're like, oh, yeah, they're, they're fatigued. Well, it's like you comparing the time for a 100-meter race to a 120-meter race, essentially. Of course they're going to be longer. So that might be because they're going through longer um, they're going to deeper to try and get the same height, but you might not know that. You're better to to take that card off the table so you know exactly what's going on. So I uh, I definitely recommend being aware and um, considering whether you need to standardize the depths with, with all the jumps you do. Um, and then long story cut short to all that, probably one of the only times that I recommend you don't do that is if you want to have a look at an athlete, how an athlete just jumps. Now, if an athlete isn't an experienced jumper, I I probably wouldn't read too much into this, but if an athlete is an experienced jumper from a jumping sport, um, whether it's a court sport like volleyball, basketball, um, uh, weightlifting, um, uh, sprinters, you know what I mean, where, where block starts for a sprint swimmer as well, for a swimmer, um, uh, then yes, you can have a look at their moving signature in an unconstrained uh, counter movement jump, and you'll have um, some people that have a lot of movement around the ankles, a lot of movement at the hips, a lot of movement around the hips, uh, a lot of movement around the knees, a lot of movement around the hips, 
and all different combinations. There might be um, things that happen uh, if you're looking at a person front on, things that happen if you're looking at a person side on. Um, and these different, the way they, what joints they use to produce the force can give you an indication of what they're strong at and what they prefer and what they might be weak at. So for instance, if a person did not use much knee flexion in their jumps, you can then ask the question, okay, do I actually need to improve their knee, knee, sorry, knee, knee extension power um, to improve their overall vertical jump? Or do I just keep focusing on the hip extension power to improve their ver overall vertical jump? Because that's what their natural tendency is. There's actually a really nice article um, from uh, the guys at P3 in the States um, that classified NBA uh, players into, um, I believe it was uh, stiff flexors who don't really uh, bend at all, hyperflexors that bend a lot across hip and knee, and then uh, hip flexors that mainly only really bend at the hip to get the, all their vertical propulsion. And I'll, that's definitely my experience as well. You can kind of bucket athletes into those blocks um, and, and without um, going too far, but uh, definitely the longer limbed, like real long-legged um, athletes with short torsos, I'd definitely say, in my experience, they've been more of these type of stiff flexors. There's not much depth. Um, they really prefer really short and sharp counter movements to get their vertical propulsion. The guys that are a bit more muscular and have a bit um, like more of an even torso to leg length, they might be more of these hyperflexors that really use a lot of force um, and joint angles to, to improve their vertical propulsion. So that's what that's what you might be looking at from a movement signature thing. Now there's other things in there in and around sort of what's happening at a um, like left versus right level. Is there say knee valgus uh, happening or occurring? Is there um, hip internal rotation or hip external rotation happening or occurring? Um, on a left or right uh, basis. And, and then again, you can be like, okay, is this something we need to be aware of? What is gonna be our tact? Does it relate to our performance model? And then what is gonna be our tact to combat this if it needs to be combated? You hinted there about asymmetries. And I spoke to Chris Bishop, the, the, master, of, the master of asymmetries here in the UK, or globally, but based here in the UK. And he's going to do an article for Sportsmith on, on asymmetries. What's your thoughts when it comes to asymmetries? Do you do you dig deeper? Do you not that this is another answer already to this, but hang your hat on certain things when it comes to asymmetries? What's your thoughts? Yeah, so I've actually had um, really really good conversations with Chris. Um, we dove into yeah. this in and around. Great guy. We're doing some. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't tell him that. Don't tell him that though. Um, <laughs> He's, uh, <laughs> we, we did a lot of stuff in and around um, some ash uh, tests, some pilot tests at the UFC. And so I actually got on the phone with him and, and we chatted through a lot of things. Um, but yeah, look, the, how he talks about your, um, the coefficient of variation, determining what the level of asymmetry should be, 100% in agreement with that. Um, the old sort of bandwidth of 10 to 15%, that might not make much sense, um, if it's not if it's above or below a functional outcome or above or below the natural variation in a, in a test you're looking at um and just an example if uh you're working with this is another thing we um kind of established through the ufc in my time there but if, you, if you're from the research if you're looking at say a dexa scan and i'm thinking of like nick um 
the CARTS research and things like this, is that if you're looking at DEXA scan, if you have anywhere from a sort of maybe a three to five percent, and correct, I might be um, slightly incorrect with these numbers, but a three to five percent limb mass asymmetry can relate to like a 10 to 15 percent um, actual power output asymmetry in unilateral tasks. So <coughs> that that's those type of variations, understanding what is an actual meaningful asymmetry based on the actual test is really important to understand. In terms of jumping, um, people love, I, I, I much prefer a unilateral jumping assessment. So looking at your left leg jumping, then looking at your right leg jumping, not looking at two legs jumping at the same time on a force plate, um, on dual force plates. In my experience, that type of bilateral um, assessment is, is probably really relevant for people that have to exert a lot of force bilaterally, skiers, uh, weightlifters, um, the like, uh, but it can be very, very changeable um, and, and, and vary a lot. Um, and I, I much prefer looking at just left leg then looking at right leg and unilateral jumps to determine what I, what I want to do. And it might be, say, counter movement jumps or it might be a pogo style jump that I'm assessing for those asymmetries uh, when a person is jumping. One of the questions that I want to dive a little bit deeper into is the last one on the list, which is does the athlete need to focus on unilateral or bilateral work to improve performance? And this is always, you go on Twitter and you see the debate around unilateral versus bilateral people putting themselves in each corner and then putting the boxing gloves on and battling it out. So how can, how, what, what does choosing to determine the right test and choosing the right test, how does that fit into answering this question? Mm, mm. So again, depends on the performance model of the sport. If an athlete is a, like, a long jump, bilateral jump, I can tell you right now, in China, in my time there, the Chinese weightlifters, the Chinese sprinters all have better counter movement jumps than the long jumpers, even though we had long jumpers that were jumping sort of over 830. Um, now, there was some pretty elite weightlifters there as well, the males um, and the females. I'm just thinking of the males when I'm talking about them, some pretty elite sprinters. But um, the relevancy of a two-legged jump and um, understanding whether you need to do more two-legged or one-legged work kind of depends on the sport first and foremost again it's working back from the sport so that's going to be your first consideration then you might say okay what is an acceptable level of asymmetry in long jump where there will be all sorts of morphological adaptations in the takeoff leg um, then th that uh, you, you need to be aware of those and be like okay if we have a like a 25% asymmetry in the takeoff leg compared to the uh, non-takeoff leg, is that an issue for this particular person? Maybe, maybe not. Um, let's delve deeper on it. Um, again, uh, now I will say in that in the takeoff, that's a consideration, but in the sprinting into, in the approach, they won't have, like their both legs want to be reducing good amount of force so they can actually run fast. So then you might be looking at what, what is your assessment? Is your assessment jump-based or is your assessment sprinting-based to look at asymmetry? What is their flight time, contact time, and relative stride length like when they're sprinting and left leg compared to right leg consistently and then determine what type of interventions you want to do from there. So for instance, if flight time is and relative stride length is always poor left versus right, then you might say, yes, we need to prioritize 
left leg uh, work over right leg work in our training to try and impact our performance model of sprinting fast in the approach before we take off. Um, so yeah, definitely you've got those asymmetries um, relating to the performance model. The other thing you can do is look at what's called a bilateral deficit. So this is essentially left leg plus right leg um, divided by uh, how much they produce in two legs. Now your bilateral deficit will change, just like asymmetries will change across the tests you use, across the variables you look at. Um, and so for instance, you might have a big bilateral deficit in strength work, like a leg press or a squat, um, but there might be no bilateral deficit in a jump. Um, you've always got to, again, relate it as closely as possible to that performance model of the sport and, and figure out, okay, if we are going to use this, is it um, really uh, relevant to, to what we're trying to use it for? So yeah, there's there's been stuff where a lower bilateral deficit, um, which means that there's a greater two leg or closer, you're, always there should be your left plus right should be greater than your two leg combined. That's why it's called a bilateral deficit. Sometimes it's called bilateral facilitation where your two legs are less than your, or your two legs are more than your left plus right. But in general, it'll be a deficit. And the lower that deficit is, the better it might be for two-legged tasks, e.g. Uh, jumping off two legs, coming out of the blocks. Um, and there might be, conversely, the higher that is, the higher the bilateral deficit, so left plus right, divided by the two legs, the higher that is, um, so your left plus right is much higher than what type what type of force or power you produce out of two legs, that's, uh, it makes sense, right, is um, better for unilateral tasks, so maybe change the direction. So then you can go, okay, what do I actually need to improve this person? Uh, is it unilateral task? Is it a bilateral task? Okay, what is their bilateral deficit? Uh, now let's maybe start thinking of prioritizing unilateral work over bilateral work if we want to improve a, a unilateral function. And it's common sense. It's like my grandma would say this to me. If you need to improve the stuff you do on one leg, you probably need to do more of the stuff on one leg, right? So real common sense, but that is, in essence, uh, asymmetry, bilateral deficit, how it might steer you in, in which direction you want to go. As we both know, common sense is not always that common. So we do get the debates of, I'm a unilateral person and I we don't do bilateral or I'm a bilateral person, we don't do unilateral. What you're saying is that we actually need to determine via some sort of assessment whether you die on the unilateral hill or you die on the bilateral hill with the particular athlete or group of athletes that you've got. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But first of all, you need to determine whether that's relevant to your sport. If it's relevant to your sporting performance model, okay. then yes, yes, you, you should you should investigate that and at least have an understanding of it. You might not even action it. Like some things we might assess, um, we might get information on, but we might determine that, hey, it's, it's not um, the biggest fish to fry or it's not what we need to really chase and hunt after at this one point in time. So yeah, determine if it's relevant to the sport, then determine if it's relevant to the individual from there and what they need to improve in that particular performance model. The final question that I'd like you to dive into just very briefly, because I know you've got the, the barbecue to light, to light in, not too, uh, in not too distant future, but sequencing, how, do we, does athlete need to improve sequencing and coordination to improve performance? How do we assess that? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is similar to that sort of approach index I, I mentioned earlier, where you might assess an athlete how well they jump without an approach compared to how, how well they jump with an approach. The other thing that athletes use a lot when they jump is their arms. So a lot of counter-movement jumps will be done without arms, hands on hips, or holding a barbell. Um, obviously, there's counter-movement jumps done with the arms. You can look at a simple difference between a counter-movement jump with arms. I think in like Vald's force uh, decks, it's called an Abkhalov jump. Um, and you can look at a jump with, with hands on hips. That will tell you how much the upper body contributes there to their counter-movement jump. Um, and so this is another sequencing coordination thing. Uh, and in general, it is um, around 20%. So if they're, well, sorry, I'll tell you a lie. If there is um, less than 20%, uh, in general, like a difference, sorry, if there's greater than 20% difference when a jump with arms and jump without arms, in general, you'd say that person needs to improve their leg output. Their upper body contributes a really large amount to their jump, and so they, they might be able to chase um, improvements from improving their leg output by jumping without arms and doing interventions without arms. Um, and oppositely, if it's less than 10% difference, you're going to say, and this is guaranteed, you're going to say, they're not using the arms well, their coordination is not uh, where it needs to be to really improve their jumping output by using the whole body, not just their lower body. Um, and, and it becomes a, a big consideration for uh, for jumping sports. One caveat I will say is there is a study on professional volleyballers where I think the difference is something like 37% between arms and no arms. So that's a massive amount, but that's they professional volleyballers are some of the best jumpers in the world, right? Um, especially off two feet. And their use of kinetic energy, their use of um, use of upper body to contribute to jump height uh, is, is massive. And if you're trained at something, that might be something that uh, people would be, okay, we could actually get to something like a 40% difference by using our arms once we become really like expert skilled at using arms and jumps. So that's another example. And the real easy training intervention for that, like I said, if it's over a 20% difference um, and they're not a uh, like expert jumper, um, you might say, okay, we need to do more jumping without arms in our training. Um, if it's less than 10%, you might say, hey, we need to improve um, what's happening in, in, in the upper body without jumping. So that means using arms more often. It might be holding onto little dumbbells, like doing whole tears when they're jumping, which is um, another sort of in vogue jumping method at the moment. Uh, we hold on to some plates or holding some small dumbbells. Wrist weights around the arms also will teach coordination and sequencing. It's like a skill acquisition thing. Uh, exogen, like the... Um, uh, sort of really, really Rolls-Royce of um, wearable resistance uh, is another great thing, great tool to use when, when you're doing that. Um, and look, you can, it's not just with jumping as well. I'm sure people have seen uh, videos of people running with sticks on their back, like dowels on their back, um, and uh, running without, running with things above their heads. All this, all this stuff is just like a differential diagnosis for whether a person needs to improve upper body sequencing with what they're doing, or their lower body uh, force output is not uh, where it should be. Superb. I can almost smell the barbecue just been lit. So I'm gonna round. I'm gonna round <laughs> up there. But no, mate, that was superb. Thank you very much. I'll link to the two articles that we've that we've um, spoken about. 
But anything else that you've got going on research-wise, publication-wise, work, where's the best pe- where's the best place for people to keep up to date what you've got going on? Yeah, look, so uh, Instagram and Twitter, I've, I've been a bit slack on uh, content last couple of years, but two kids under the age of five will do that to you. Um, that's just at Joseph Coyne uh, on, on both. Um, and then, yeah, actually uh, had my last article from my PhD come out. I finished my PhD, but the last article actually came out uh, just the other day, uh, subjective training load and sort of... Um, uh, it's like a follow-up and future directions for where, where we think subject to training load, e.g. SRPE uh, and differential RPE should go. So if people are interested, that's another thing that I'm uh, I've sort of uh, delved into besides jumping and and uh, spent spent close to close to four years figuring out what I want to do with a 1 to 10 scale, um, which doesn't sound like that much in, in the scheme of things. But uh, yeah, it's uh, that's out there. So if people want to jump on that, I'd highly recommend that as well. ResearchScape, you can find a ResearchScape. Perfect. Right, I'm going to let you crack on. Really appreciate your time as always and uh, look forward to keeping in touch and, and chatting soon. Yeah, awesome, mate. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for tuning in to episode 397 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Joseph. It was great getting him on for a long overdue part two to go through the Sportsmith article, which you can check out on sportsmith.co forward slash articles. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Kitman Labs, Samsung Equipment and Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. Like I say every week, it could, the podcast could not run its current from without these guys. So if you're interested in any of their line of products, make sure you check them out. So big thanks to you for tuning in today and look forward to chatting to you next time.